everyone. You're listening to Little Bit of Life Podcast with Little. This podcast is dedicated to having the real, raw, and the occasional ridiculous chats about everything that we seem to think but don't say. Very little is off limits. Sit back, enjoy, and let's get started. person placed in cryonic suspension uh, is uh, probably, without a doubt, it's the most uh, sanitary, the most scientific and perfect form of preservation we can possibly can imagine. Neil, I began to think, what if the doctors can't find a cure, can't find a way? What should we do? That's when cryonics entered my mind. It's a possibility that's existed in science fiction for years. Two American corporations now claim to offer it as a reality. It sounds like science fiction, but it's not. I want to live until tomorrow. I want to live forever and ever. I love life. I want to see the future. Death is an option. The idea of reanimating is wishful thinking. I don't care if it's robotic. I don't care what my body is. Hey guys, and welcome into another episode of Little Bit of Life Podcast with Little, where we talk about pretty much things that people think, but they don't say. And I have an amazing podcast that I'm so excited for this episode today. I was just having kind of one of those evenings where I was just, you know, relaxing, turned on Netflix and something came up for trending. So I gave it a shot and it was called Hope Frozen. And it's about a young girl at two and a half. Uh, Her name is Ainz, which stands for love. And her and her family live in Thailand. And she received a very negative prognosis in regards to brain cancer. Both of her parents, they work in the medical field and they chose science of another opportunity at life for their daughter by cryogenically freezing her with a company called Alcor. Yeah, I said it right. Freezing their daughter for a second opportunity at life. So as I'm watching the show and I'm watching the documentary, um, I do notice that they have this company called Alcor 20 minutes from my location of where I live. How cool is that, right? Then I started to get a little bit more intrigued, go onto their website, which shows every single possible option and question and scientific background and medical background that you could dive into. Let's just say I didn't go to bed that night till at least midnight. So looking into Alcor, they are the world leader in cryonics with the most advanced technology of any cryonics organization. And it was founded by Fred and Linda Chamberlain in 1972. So most people think that, yeah, this is science fiction. This is never going to happen. We're playing God here. Yeah. I think I probably thought everything before diving into both the documentary and this website. So cryonics, they're basic. It's an effort to save lives by using temperatures that are so cold that a person beyond help by today's medicine can be preserved for decades and even centuries. Yeah. Can you imagine? But this isn't like science fiction. This isn't something that just kind of came off of a shelf or came out of a Hollywood producer's brain. The first book was written on cryonics by a man by the name of Robert Ettinger back in 1964. So this has been around for a while. It's just medicine and science and us learning about this and just kind of training our brain of, you know, there might be something else besides passing and yearning for more life and wanting to see more and do more and have more. This could soon be a possibility in the future. So Alcor performed its first human cryopreservation on Fred Chamberlain's father back in 1976. Ten years later, in 1986, they preserved their very first cryo member's companion animal. I know we all love our pets, so who would not want to have them over and over and over again? They relocated from California to the state of Arizona, and we'll kind of dive into why. And just from 1976, when they were founded to now, they have over 190 patients, full body, neuro options, and everything in between. So when we're diving into cryonics and we're kind of talking about this, I highly, highly suggest that you go over to my YouTube and put in the comments and give us some feedback here. If you had an opportunity to come back and have a second chance at life, whether it's in 50 years to see what technology came out, 100 years to live and have the opportunity in a younger version and a younger body of yourself, would you do so? And if not, why? And if you would, are you worried about coming back and being alone or being so-called behind the times 
because we all know technology is moving so quickly. So let's dive into this podcast. I did have the honor of having Linda Chamberlain, a CEO and co-founder of Alcor, come on to today's podcast, and hopefully she'll answer some of the questions you all might have. And if there's anything in this podcast that's not answered for you, I highly suggest you go to their website. They're about ready to have their 50th anniversary conference. Their website is so informational, informative. It has every single question that you could possibly ask and hopefully answered. So let's get started and let's talk about freezing bodies in time. Hey, everybody, and welcome to yet another amazing episode of Little Bit of Life Podcast with Little. I have a very special guest with me today and very excited for this very special episode. I know a lot of listeners have been watching a new documentary that came out on Netflix. It's called Hope Frozen. We've gotten a lot of great feedback, and we actually have Linda Chamberlain here with us. She is a co-founder an amazing opportunity to come speak with us from Alcor. So Linda, thank you so much for being here with us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you. So I've heard um, Alcor's kind of motto is that dying is a process, not an event. And I find that comment to just be so amazing because when we think of what the concept was of death and passing on, even 20, 30 years ago, it used to be with cardiac. As soon as your heart stopped beating, you were declared deceased at that time. And I think that science and medical and everything is coming along so quickly. So tell me a little bit about Alcor. What do you, what do you guys offer to your members and what do you stand for? We offer cryopreservation to people who find themselves in the situation where um, standard medical practice has given up. They can't do anything further to save your life. And so one option at that point um, is to have your body cryopreserved in a state um, where most of your cells and organs and that sort of thing are viable. Um, But we keep you at a temperature which is so low, uh, it's liquid nitrogen, it's minus 196 Celsius or minus 320 Fahrenheit, and at that temperature, enzymes aren't, you know, doing anything. Even the, the, the atoms themselves are not moving. So there's no further deterioration. And uh, the hope is that within 50 to 100 years, we will have the revival uh, technologies necessary to reverse the person's condition and bring them back to healthy function. That's amazing. Um, Doing some research and kind of diving into Alcor, um, you guys had your first patient in 1976. And when we think about the word of, you know, everybody uses the term freezing a body. And with freezing comes, you know, all of the ice and the damage that it can do to tissues. I think it's amazing to hear that this cryo process has been around for quite a bit of time. It's just kind of now becoming more of a a known thing and, and people are starting to get intrigued. So From that time of 1976 to current, how many members or how many patients, as we'll call them, how many do you have now? Uh, Well, I don't know the exact number uh, on the top of my head, but we have approximately 1,400 members. That's people who have made both the legal and the financial arrangements in advance to be cryopreserved. Um, And we have approximately... 200 uh, people um, in stasis at this time who have been cryopreserved. And if you'd like, I can go to the website um, and get you the exact numbers. I've done quite a bit of research, like I said, and I know that um, it does state on there. um, And I love that it kind of pushes that, that you guys do not promise future life as like a permanent option, but when it does come as an availability, that you will do the best that you can. And I think that's really important, especially with what this is based on science is because like we discussed earlier, it always seems to be that moment of, well, has it been done? And if it hasn't been done yet, will it, will it really work? Right. And, and you're right. We want always uh, a top priority in signing up a new person for this procedure is to make sure they have all the disclaimers, they have, have all the information about where the process is right now. A whole human being has not been revived yet. 
And uh, the, the closest thing we can do is to routinely um, vitrify and then rewarm rabbit kidneys, which are about the size of my thumb, and then take that rabbit kidney, put it back into the rabbit, who both of the kidneys were removed, put it back into the rabbit and have the rabbit survive. We can do that routinely. Um, but there's a big difference between doing something this size and something this size. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, so it's uh, the rabbit kidneys are proof of concept, but the challenges in going from something small to something very large is that the greater the mass, the more variables you have to control simultaneously uh, and immediately so that um, the tissues are not damaged uh, and can, in the process, can then be reversed. So for um, our uh, members who signed up for this, they understand that um, we can't guarantee um, the, you know, the outcome. I did see on your website as well, there's two different options that members or patients can choose from. Um, you offer the full body as an option, um, but you also offer the option of just the neuro only. Um, do you have more like, is there a difference in regards to what members choose of why they choose one versus the other? Um, yes, yes, there, there are differences. Um, I would say about half of our membership are uh, have opted for whole body and about half have opted for neuro. Um, and the different, there are a lot of differences and Alcor does not um, recommend one over the other. There are pros and cons on both sides. So we, you know, we give all of the, the pros and cons to a member who's signing up and we let them make their own decision. Uh, one of the big differences um, for some people that's important is that it only costs $80,000 to have only your cephalon. That's all of the structures in your head and neck, um, and which includes the brain. Um, about um, So that's like $80,000. If a person chooses to go whole body, that's $200,000. Uh, that's a big factor for many people. There are also such things as... Um, we talked about the mass that we are vitrifying, that we're cryopreserving, uh, and how important that is. If we're only concerned with this much, um, we still find that uh, our cryoprotective procedures can often be uh, more successful uh, for our neuropatients than for our whole body patients. Some people argue that... um, in the future, the revival technologies will have to be very, very robust. They'll have to be able to do, uh, number one, they'll have to reverse any damage that was caused during the dying and cryopreservation process. They'll have to um, reverse whatever it was that killed the person, whether it was cancer or heart disease or, or whatever. And they will have to be able to revive people to a younger age. In other words, if you are a person who wants this procedure, you don't want to come back and still be 90 years old and have cancer. So um, we don't consider it would be a successful revival if those three things haven't successfully been done. So many people argue that the revival technologies will have to be so powerful and so good that, um, you know, small mechanical damage that might happen, maybe because of a blockage somewhere, uh, the vitrification um, chemicals weren't able to get past the blockage, so there was a lot of damage uh, to the arm, which actually crystallized, it froze instead of being vitrified, Um Things like that, um, some people are more concerned about that than others, depending on how much faith they have in how good revival technologies will be. So those are the kinds of issues, and um, we, ha- we send people with their information package, all you know, discussion of all these various things they need to uh, consider, and then we encourage them to um, call us and, and discuss it if, if they want to do that further. 
How long is, like, how long can a patient be in this state? Like, for how many years um, is it being kind of offered at this time? I mean, if, if science and medicine kind of don't link up, let's say, in 1,000 years, 50,000 years, what is the length of time that, some, that someone can, can be in this state of, of, of frozen time, so to speak? I can't <clears throat> completely answer that if we're talking about hundreds of thousands of years. It's not likely that any of our patients would be in stasis for more than 50 to 100 years. And that's just based on um, looking at research into revival technologies, which are undoubtedly going to include nanotechnology, which is repair at the the cellular level. Um, And looking at the science which is being done in that field, those researchers tell us it's probably going to be 50 to 100 years before they can provide us good, reliable um, revival technologies. Um, In that kind of a time span, even even centuries, maybe a thousand years, uh, no changes will be taking place because uh, when your tissues are at minus 320 degrees Fahrenheit, um, nothing is happening. There's no enzymes going off. The, the, the atoms aren't um, moving at all. So there's absolutely no change um, in, the, in the condition of those tissues at that temperature. So it's very stable for a very long period of time. 100,000 years, I, I really couldn't tell you because nobody's <laughs> looked at, nobody's you know, um, really looked at, at that question. Right. But I don't think it's that important. When looking at um, the death process, um, the moment of passing always is provided by science as regarding the time that brain activity and cardiac death kind of come to play. So once that's done, let's say you're at home with hospice or you're in a hospital. um, Do you guys kind of struggle now currently with this not being a new type of way to kind of proceed further, but now, especially with it coming to light, do you guys struggle a lot with like hospitals or hospice kind of being on board with this option for patients? Um, very seldom anymore. In, you know, 50 years ago when we first started doing this, it was a major uh, struggle to get them on board. They wouldn't even want to release um, our member to us. Um, we used the uh, Uniform Anatomical Gift Act as a, a means of taking possession of our patients. Um, but sometimes they would refer it to their legal department and really hold us up. Uh, a couple of times we had to get uh, attorneys uh, to go to a judge and issue a restraining order uh, forcing them to give the patient to us. Uh, but we seldom run into those kind of situations anymore. Um, the situation that is most problematic for us uh, these days is if a uh, person uh, dies uh, and, un- uh, and suffers an, an unattended death, meaning that um, they died in the middle of the night or something, they haven't seen their physician for many months, um, and that is one frequent cause for autopsy. And autopsy is very, very bad. Uh, It's contraindicated for cryonics um, people. Um, And so in those situations, we, when we know something is happening, uh, and right now with COVID frequently, um, uh, we find that people are being autopsied. And so if we uh, have a situation like that, um, we immediately get our attorneys on board to call uh, the medical examiner, uh, talk with them, uh, try to get them to limit the autopsy to blow, um, you know, like the clavicles, uh, so that the brain isn't sectioned and removed, uh, and and that kind of thing. Most of the time. Um, we are able under normal circumstances to get medical examiners to cooperate with us and limit um, 
the autopsy. And these days, uh, more and more coroner's offices, unless they're in a very small rural town or something, um, usually they can do a virtual autopsy um, and take blood samples. And that is sufficient uh, for them to feel comfortable. COVID has made it a little bit more difficult because they're not willing um, to waive uh, autopsy in COVID cases. But it's it's loosening up a little as things get. Uh, we have fewer deaths from COVID and that sort of thing, and we have better medication and that sort of thing. So that's getting easier. Good. As far as um, the issue of being pronounced legally deceased, that is a, a very important issue for us. Uh, in our stabilization procedure. So um, we try to get people to, if, if they uh, know they have a fatal disease like cancer or something, and they're going into hospice, then let's transfer you to Scottsdale into hospice, one of the hospice organizations that we work with, um, so that we can have our standby team at your bedside at the moment that you're pronounced and we can start stabilizing you immediately. Um, if, if that's not possible, um, then we can fly our team to your bedside uh, if we have sufficient notice to be able to do that. And um, so uh, all of our team members, uh, our medical response director, uh, understand how critical time is because ischemia is what happens to your cells if they don't have sufficient oxygen. It's just the medical term for what happens when you don't have oxygen. And there are two kinds. There's cold ischemia and there's warm ischemia. Warm ischemia obviously being worse. So when you very first die and you're pronounced, um, and we have to wait for that legally, um, every minute after you uh, go into clinical death, you are experiencing um, warm ischemia. So our stabilization process um, is meant to um, slow down and stop those problems. But it's very important that we start as soon as possible in order to make that happen. So being with Members um, International, does that kind of pose a little bit more of like a rapid response or how does that work if let's say there is an, like a sudden passing and they are international, what's the process for the, for the standby team at that point? Um, it, if, if one of our members is in Europe um, or you know, anywhere else in the world, and they have a sudden heart attack, so they weren't able to even let us know in advance. We get notified by the hospital or something. Um, then it is a very different and sad situation. We aren't there uh, to start our uh, stabilization procedures immediately. And so it will depend on how much time has elapsed. If the person, if, if we weren't notified for, say, 24 hours. Um, and if they're in Europe, we know that there's, there, you know, there's going to be transit times uh, to try to get our team there. There's going to be, you know, just lot, many, many, many delays. And so we have protocols for different levels of um, delay or, or, you know, um, decreased ability to respond quickly. And so uh, in a, you know, if it's been a couple of days, then we will consider that um, we'll, we really won't be able to perfuse them with our vitrification chemicals uh, because our perfusion process is done via the circulatory system so that we can get the chemicals to every cell in the body. Um, if it's been more than 24 hours uh, of warm ischemia, um, the degradation that has happened to that circulatory system um, is sufficient that we won't be able to perfuse them. It will just leak out uh, interstitially between the cells and, and that sort of thing. So in that case, the that's a really, really bad case. So uh, in that case, we try to, to uh, minimize the continued deterioration on the cellular level. Um, we pack 
that patient in dry ice and get them down to minus um, 80 degrees centigrade as quickly as possible. And then at that temperature, um, they will not have any um, further degradation for several weeks. So that gives our teams time to get there to make all the legal arrangements and fly them back um, to the U.S. Um, And then once back in the U.S., we can take them down to liquid nitrogen temperature. Um, But that's really a almost a worst case kind of scenario. Um, And all we can do is to try to prevent further damage. So the best case is um, you're in hospice in um, Scottsdale where uh, we're right there. There's no transit time. There's no cold ischemia. Um, where uh, you've been stabilized, but we have to fly you back to Alcor. There may be, you know, uh, five, 10 hours uh, for that to happen. Um, and uh, But that's still better than, um, you know, uh, many other situations. Mm-hmm. With Because um, I know you guys moved from California to Arizona, Um and this was quite quite a few years ago. What was the reasoning for the move? Besides, was it? I mean, obviously, Arizona's great. It's where I, I've lived for many many years. But we don't have any <laughs> natural disasters. We don't have like any of like the normal things that you know you would see in California. So, was that the main reason or one of the reasons for the relocation? Uh, it was one of the reasons, the uh, general stability. Um, but uh, there was another very important reason, and that was that uh, the political climate in Southern California, where we had our first facility, um, was not good. We were having problems with the coroner there. Um, and um, so even though... Um, we basically won a lawsuit against them. They were still, uh, that coroner was basically found guilty himself of doing some bad things like selling body parts and things. So uh, he fell into disfavor, but his um, his uh, whole department was still, very, you know, a lot of animosity against Alcor, especially uh, once we turned uh, the page Uh, we're not the bad guys, you are. And uh, so uh, they would drag their feet uh, and they would not help us get death certificates and and various things that we needed. So we decided um, the political climate in in Arizona um, was very positive. Um, We came over and talked to uh, mayor, you know, the mayor of Phoenix and Scottsdale and and, uh, about what we were doing. They were very positive. Um, And uh, we talked to like senators and and that sort of thing. Um, And uh, the medical examiner's office. And they were very um, open to working with us and helping us. So um, the political climate and medical um, uh, climate, as well as lack of earthquakes and uh, that sort of thing uh, together uh, prompted us to move. I know, especially with, you know, what you're doing is so what many think is almost like science fiction. And a lot of times, like I said, if it's, if we don't see something or we're not able to prove it in this moment, and and as of right now, a lot of people are kind of skeptical. And I know, um, when you were talking about, you know, the political aspect of California and based on Arizona and, you know, legal issues that you kind of, you guys kind of come into. Um, I know with Arizona, they tried to pass a bill um, here in the House in 2004 that would basically put you guys into the same state regulations as funeral boards. And I think that was a huge issue in regards to the state and kind of them trying to stop the the progress and the progression. Um, but a lot of people kind of go into a religious debate in regards to what you're doing. Um, and I think that's something that needs to kind of be more knowledgeable, especially with the community and society, that this is a choice that your members are making for their possibility of the future. And this has to do with medical and science. I mean, when we look at, you know, the, the options, we're kind of technically doing this now with frozen embryos and science and, you know, doing that aspect in the beginning versus the end of life. So I think that's really important that these are members that are choosing this option if and when it comes available. So with your members, um, 
once that process they have you know they've legally been pronounced deceased um, they get into your care what's the process then to kind of start them in this frozen piece of time like what happens medically once they get to your facility okay um when they're pronounced, I've, I've mentioned a couple of times, um, we do a lot to stabilize them and, and keep their organs and their cells from uh, deteriorating. Um, we have evolved such that uh, usually when a human dies, a mammal dies, um, the cells will begin to lice or uh kill themselves, basically, and it's the beginning of the deterioration process. So it's important to block that, stop that, um, and we do a lot of different things. One of the most important things that we do is uh, we immediately start lowering your temperature as much as we can uh, by putting you into an ice bath with circulating water. Um, for every uh, 10 degrees that we can lower uh, the patient's core temperature, um, we cut their metabolism in half. Their demand in their need for oxygen is cut in half. And so that's a very important part of minimizing this ischemic damage that, that I talked about. We also have a lot of different medications that we give. The very first medication that we give um, is propofol, which is a very standard anesthetic used uh, in a lot of outpatient uh, types of procedures. And um, it too lowers uh, the, it specifically lowers brain metabolism demands. Uh, and it also acts as an anesthetic. So uh, theoretically, uh, once we put a thumper on the person to circulate the medications um, and we um, start vent ventilating them, we've basically reversed um, the clinical death that was pronounced. Their heart is working again. They're breathing again. Uh, theoretically, they could become conscious and experience what's going on. It would not be pleasant. Um, just being in an ice bath wouldn't be pleasant, uh, but having a thumper on you and everything. So uh, the propofol also prevents that from happening. So a couple of important things there. Then we have, we have membrane stabilizers and um, uh, things to keep the pH in balance. And there's just a whole host of things to uh, slow down and stop the ischemic damage, which is trying to take place biochemically. And so that usually takes with a team of three or four people, that usually takes about 20 minutes um, at that point, uh, they're placed into our rescue vehicle and brought to Alcor. Um, we have a couple of different hospice organizations uh, that are within about five to 10 minutes of our operating room. Uh, we get them back to Alcor and then um, we will uh, begin the vitrification process. Um, now, if they are not in Scottsdale, we'll do all of those things that I mentioned, but we, they're not a five-minute drive to Alcor. They may be a, a five- or ten-hour plane flight from Alcor. So for those cases, um, we will uh, perfuse them with um, an organ transplant solution exactly the same kind of solution that organ transplant teams use. And for exactly the same reason, it stabilizes uh, the organ uh, or the human uh, at a cellular level so that they are viable for an extra 10 to 20 hours, depending upon the organ, so that the transplant team can get that organ across the country to a recipient. And for us, it gives us an extra 10 to 20 hours of viability to get them to the Alcor OR. So <clears throat> in both of those cases now, our patient has arrived, our, our operating room is up and operating, uh, people are waiting. So as soon as the, the patient is brought into the OR, then we begin to um, cannulate the vessels. If it's a whole body patient, we cannulate uh, the heart, uh, cannulation meaning, meaning we will hook up uh, tubes uh, to the vessels in the heart. 
Uh, if it's a, a neuro patient, we use the carotid arteries. We cannulate those. Um, and then from that point, it's pretty much the same procedure. Um, what we do is uh, we uh, will, if the washout hasn't been done in the field, as I described, replacing the blood with a, um, a transplant solution, then it is done in the OR. We wash out the person's blood. We don't replace it with uh, a, a, a transplant solution because we don't need to uh, for those cases. But at that point, um, we will begin to replace the fluid, which is in the vasculature with our vitrification solution. I don't think I've defined that. So for some people, if they're not physicists, they may not know what that means. Uh, when any liquid goes from a liquid state to a solid state, it can do that in two ways. It can either crystallize, which is we're all familiar with freezing things, or um, if there are certain chemicals um, there in certain concentrations, instead of crystallizing, uh, the liquid will turn into a solid glass-like state with no crystals. It's called vitrification. And that uh, we have been able to do for about 20 years now. And um, very uh, successfully with small tissue samples and small things like rabbit kidneys and things like that, um, so we begin to replace the fluids in the body um, with the vitrification solution. And we do this by recirculating the fluids because we have to start with a very dilute solution uh, because if it's the full strength solution, um, it will cause osmotic damage um, by too much too soon. So we start very slow, very low concentration, and uh, it's all computer controlled at this point. So because um, that ramp getting uh, greater and greater concentration has to be paced against the temperature going lower and lower. The lower the temperature, the higher the concentration can be without causing damage. Um, and so uh, this usually takes uh, a about four hours, uh, we have found, uh, our, our experiments have shown that um, if we do this for more than four hours, then the patient's um, exposure to the vitrification solution, it can be, even at low temperatures, it can be uh, toxic. So we don't want to expose them too long before we go ahead and take the temperatures down uh, and we turn them into a solid state. And um, almost always we can uh, get up to 60% of uh, their fluids uh, vitrified within that uh, time period. That's always the uh, that's always the goal for the procedure. Um, and so at that point, uh, they're taken down. Um, the We go one degree per minute for the first 80 degree loss. And then at that point, uh, they are, are safe enough and stable enough that we can go as rapidly uh, as possible. And it takes about 24 hours to get them down to liquid nitrogen temperature. And then they are transferred into one of our stainless steel vats. It looks very much like a, a tall uh, thermos bottle. Um, and, they, and it's filled with liquid nitrogen and they go in there. And that's where they will remain for the next 50 to 100 years. And I read also that those are not based on working or functioning, so to speak, on electricity. So if there was ever a power outage or a natural disaster, um, it's not something that would be a huge cause of concern. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh, liquid nitrogen, which fills the doer, um, it just sits there at minus 320 degrees Fahrenheit. That's just its ambient temperature. Um, if, we, if we wanted to go lower or if we wanted to warm it up, we would have to use electricity to do that. But it just sits there at that temperature. And that's why it was chosen, because it's a very passive state. We don't have to worry about blackouts or um, um, sandstorm knocking out uh, the electricity or, you know, any of that kind of thing. Um, 
it does boil off. It sits there and it boils off. Um, so we do have to replace it. And we've done experiments on our doers and uh, it takes a it takes about five or six months for uh, the uh, liquid nitrogen to fall all the way down to the bottom of the tank. Um, and so for safety, we top them off every week or two. And then in these vessels, how many um, patients can be stored? Are they single or are they all together? How many can be stored at one time? The uh, design of uh, we have just recently started using a larger doer uh, than than we have used for the last, you know, like 50 years, 45 years. Um, we used to be able to get um, four whole body patients around the outside of the doer, you know, inside, but around the, uh, the outside of it. Uh, and then down the core, we could get five neuro patients, each in its own individual a little protective container. And uh, we've gone to a, a larger doer now that can hold up to 18 patients. And so uh, we probably are going to, uh, our engineers keep looking at different uh, you know, ways of uh, would it be better to have one um, that is all neuro patients and have nothing but whole body patients uh, in uh, another doer. And so it changes from time to time, but it went from about nine to about 18 patients um, that can be in a, in a doer. And for the patients, um, I know it's based on probably, I'm assuming, um, their intake. So when they come in, if there's members that, let's say, every person in their family wants to be a part of Alcor, are they able to save a space, so to speak, so that they can be in one of these, like, with their family members? Or is it just based on intake, like, where they're, where they're remaining for the time being? Yeah. Unfortunately, it just has to be... Um time of need, uh, where you will be placed. Uh, it would require us moving patients around and things like that to try to get them or, 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 you know, having a doer, which is just full of nitrogen all the time, but there's only one patient in it for maybe 10 years or something, uh, which would be very expensive. Uh, I suppose if a billionaire came to us and said, I want to buy my own doer, I want to pay the costs uh, so that, Al, you, know, they, you know, we'd probably try to work something out. But um, the uh, typical situation is um, you go where is the best place for you at the time you need to go into long-term care. Uh, in my family, for example, uh, my father-in-law, who was our first patient in 1976, and my mother, uh, who was cryopreserved in 1990, um, on like uh, 15 years later, um, they're both in the same doer because the number of patients per year was much lower at that time. They both ended up in, in the same doer. My um, husband, um, the other co-founder of Alcor, was cryopreserved in 2012. He's in a separate doer and I will end up in some other separate doer too. It's just economics and, and that sort of thing, and the safety of the patients. If we're moving them around all the time, there's more potential uh, for damaging the patient. Right. And I'm sure this is a question you get constantly all the time, but when people hear about Alcor and look into the process, I think it's more understandable, so to speak, of the full body. If you're revived and your body and you choose the full body option, the big question is always, if you just choose the neuro option only, what are your options then for possibly in the future for reviving? Is there a possibility for like a clone of a body or what? what is the option if you just choose that neuro only? Uh, yes. And uh, right now, um, it's very difficult for us to try to look into the future and predict uh, future technologies. But we figure the most likely situation is to clone a body from your DNA. Obviously, we've got a lot of DNA and all of this tissue. Um, and so we, we will be able to clone a new body for you. It's your body. It's your DNA. It just isn't all beat up. Um, it doesn't have cancer. It doesn't have, you know, uh, aging muscles and, and things like that. Um, some of our scientists uh, 
think that it will be easier to create a new young body for you than to uh, go in and try to find all the different damaged areas and repair those. And uh, so some people uh, um, think that, that that's preferable um, for that reason alone. Um, the older we get, um, uh, the more we see our bodies deteriorating. And so older people tend to um, more frequently request um, neuropreservation and younger people whose bodies are still in good shape tend to request a whole body. Yeah, I can understand that for sure. <laughs> Um, so when it when we talk about this, and I'm sure a lot of listeners, the main question or the main concern is cost. And I read online that life insurance you can actually get that will help assist in this process. Is there anything for listeners if they may be listening and they know of a family member that might be interested or they themselves might be interested when they're going into this process? Is there something specific that they need to ask for or look for with this life insurance if they want to proceed with this? Um, yes, and I would uh, tell people, um, call Alcor and talk to the membership director. Uh, she's the one who deals with this all the time. Uh, I only have kind of a, uh, a simplified answer. There are some types of insurance that are much, much better. Uh, sometimes people will go with like um, uh, term insurance because it's very cheap. Uh, initially, but they keep bumping up the prices. And what happens many times is people find, um, I, I got this really cheap when I was in my 20s, but now I'm in my 50s. I find I have cancer. I can't get additional insurance. And they're bumping it up to the place where I can't afford uh, to keep that policy anymore. Um, and so there are uh, types of insurance which uh, don't do that to you. Um, and uh, our membership director is able to explain those things and to help people with making those choices. It is true that about 90% of our members use life insurance because of the ease. You just pay a monthly uh, premium to the insurance company. Alcor is the beneficiary of the policy. And uh, so um, it's it works very well in its financially simpler. There are other things uh, available uh, for people who, you know, some people say, I don't want to have to do all that. I just want to give you a one-time payment. Can I do that? Yep, it can be done. Uh, can I um, give make you the beneficiary of my investment account? Because I, you know, I'm a day trader. I make more money if I keep that money where I can keep trading it. Yes, we can deal with those. Um, and again, our membership director is the person who kind of knows how to make all those things happen. Great. So with the possibility of being reanimated, is there a plan or different options to so-called rehabilitate um, the members back into society at that time? And obviously, like, we don't know when that timing would be, but it's kind of similar to those in like a medical coma um, when they come back. Is there, I mean, I think the fear now, a lot of listeners and a lot of people who research and look into this is I'm going to come back and I'm going to be alone. And I know with um, your facility, you guys offer like the time capsule, so to speak, so people can make videos or, you know, provide stuff so that there's kind of an explanation if and when that does come to point. So do you guys come up with different ideas or options for like a rehabilitation at that time? Or how does that work? Um, it's, it's a bit early for us to know exactly um, what kind of rehabilitation might be available 50 to 100 years from now. But uh, it will need to be individualized. Uh, not everybody is going to need the same thing. Just to give you an example of myself versus my father-in-law. Um, I have dealt with this for 50 years. I have worked in this industry for 50 years. I don't think I'm going to have any future shock when I'm brought back. I probably won't need any rehabilitation. Um, but uh, my father-in-law was, uh, he was in his 80s. He, uh, his health was very bad. His kidneys were failing. He had uh, had, had several strokes. Um, he was on a lot of medications, and we all know what that does to your brain uh, and your ability to, to think um, clearly. Uh, my husband and I tried to talk to him several times about wanting to corral preserve him, 
and he, he would basically just look at us confused, you know, kind of like the, the deer in the headlights um, and just say, I, I just don't understand what you guys are talking about. You kids just do what you think is best. So I'm assuming um, that he and people who have similar situations um, might have some um, need for rehabilitation. There, there might be some future shock kind of thing. Uh, you did what to me? Uh, what's the year again? You know, um, and, and just not have any idea. And so, um, you know, just like with um, the, this whole COVID thing has, has made us all so much more aware of uh, the mental health problems uh, that people uh, routinely have encountered just with isolation. And uh, there's so many things um, that, that can be problematic. And so I assume that uh, um, there will be uh, members who will need some rehabilitation and, and some help in adjusting to the future. And so, um, but exactly what that will be, we just, we don't know yet, but we, we do try to do, uh, some things. We have a committee, um, a revival committee where we kind of talk about this issue exactly. And, and what can we do? What potentially, uh, what can we put in place, uh, that might be helpful, uh, to, patients when they're revived. One of those things is our memory box. You kind of referred to videotapes and things like that. Um, every member gets a free memory box. They have to pay extra if they want more. We have one patient who has 36. Um, he was a TV producer and he had a lot of things he wanted to uh, take with him. But most people have one or two boxes. Uh, and most people put it things like photos, letters, thumb drives, you know, things like this, which can help them uh, recall memories. You know, it's kind of like if you've ever uh, found an old scrapbook that you haven't seen for maybe 10 or 20 years and you open it up and it's just like, oh my God, I forgot all about that. And it, yeah. you just flooded memories again. And so we look at, at the memory box as being that. It's kind of a scrapbook to help you uh, help your neurons reach out and make the connections that it needs to make, uh, you know, to give it that spark. Uh, we also offer um, to our members a couple of different revival trusts, depending upon how much money they might want to set aside. Um, one very small uh, trust could be as little as $25,000. But if you're going to be... Um, you know, uh, in stasis for 50 to 100 years, that can still give you a nice uh, little um, bit of change when you come back. The other one is a larger and more complicated uh, trust for people who can afford to put 500000 or more into it. So we've got two different uh, options there um, for people who uh, would like to, um, you know, make arrangements to have some kind of... Uh, money when they come back, assets when they come back. And um, so uh, those are the things that we've, you know, tried to think about uh, at this point. Um, but as far as who exactly will need uh, some kind of therapy and exactly what kind of therapy uh, can be given to them, it's too soon for us to really know that yet. But I can say that Alcor is the only cryonics organization that I know of in the whole world and there's maybe four or five um, that uh, that actually says we will we will not only pay for your reanimation. None of the organi other organizations do. They say we'll get you cryopreserved, and and um, we expect that people in the future will be so gracious uh, and generous that they will be happy to pay to bring you back. Alcor doesn't want to take that risk, um, and so uh, we. Um, in our contracts state that we will pay for your revival and rehabilitation if that's needed. How do we plan to pay for that? Well, about um, 15 years ago, we set up uh, what's called the Patient Care Trust. Uh, it's a separate trust organization. Uh, when our <clears throat> member is cryopreserved, their funding is split into two buckets. Uh, it takes about half of the funding to get them 
cryopreserved and into liquid nitrogen, and it takes about half of their funding, um, will go into the patient care trust to pay for their long-term care and revival and rehabilitation if necessary. And um, that is a pooled trust, and it's worth about $17 million today. Uh, and uh, every patient adds uh, half of their funding to that trust. So That's amazing. And that's probably a, a very comforting feeling to know that everything's taken care of, especially with the way the economy is working now. Who knows where we're going to be in even 20 to 50 years. So it's probably very comfortable to know that there's like that safety net provided by the company. And I know you said you're the only organization out there. So that's that's phenomenal that you offer that. So with Alcor, what do you think is probably the most misunderstood thing about it? I think the most misunderstood thing is that uh, most people, if they're not in the medical field, misunderstand what death is. They, you know, they think mm-hmm. it's an on-off switch. One moment you're alive, the next moment you're dead, you're irrecoverable. Um, the last 40 or 50 years in standard medicine have definitely proven that that's not the case. It's a process. It's, this is kind of where we started at the beginning of our discussion. Um, it takes hours for a human being, depending upon the conditions, uh, it takes hours for them to gradually die and be in a state where they cannot be recovered. Uh, Even 30, 40 years ago, if a person had a heart attack, uh, they were just declared deceased, they're dead, nothing we can do. But we all know about ambulances, you know, and uh, um, fibrillators and all of these different things. If a person goes into cardiac arrest now, um, all kinds of medical uh, technology is applied to bringing them back to healthy consciousness, Um, at least as long as it would take to get them to the hospital where the where the physicians can now reverse that situation. It doesn't always happen, but there's a lot that can be done and people can be revived. Uh, even after many hours, um, there are many cases of people who have fallen into frozen lakes. And because of those cold temperatures, once again, remember, if you can reduce the core temperature just 10 degrees, you cut the need for metabolism, the need for oxygen in half. And so a person can, as long as they are very cold, even without any of our other medications or thumpers or ventilators or anything, um, people have survived. I think the longest I remember reading about was about five hours um, in a, a child that fell into cold water uh, and was revived after that amount of time. Children are more resilient than adults. So, uh, But I think there was a recent case of an adult in Europe um, that was revived after about four or five hours even. And so um, it, it isn't an event. It's not an on-off switch. And many people still see it that way. Um, and so they think to themselves, well, if I'm dead, you can't revive me. Um, Would I, if I'm in the tank, uh, will I engage in lucid dreaming? Will I be aware of the very slow passage of time? What is it going to be like to be in a sensory deprivation tank for 100 years? I think that it's these kinds of misconceptions um, that make people uh, think this is not something that they would want to do. Mm-hmm. And being that you've been a part of Alcor and with your family and all of your family members, what are you most proud of, whether it's growth or the direction that's moving? What are you most proud of Alcor as of this moment right now? I guess I'd have to say the organizational integrity. Uh, the growth has been very slow, 50 years, and we still only have you know 1,400 people signed up for this and another 200 who've already done it, that's very slow growth uh, by by any business model. Uh, but uh, Alcor over the decades has been resilient um, to many challenges, many legal challenges uh, and problems. 
and uh, it has always managed to uh, pick itself back up and keep going and always uh, with the greatest of integrity. And I, I think that is mostly due to the fact that we are us. Uh, Alcor is not just an organization uh, that sells Frisbees. Um, we are, if we were selling Frisbees, we would be the ones buying those Frisbees and we let other people buy them too. But, but we ourselves are very concerned about um, how good um, our, our procedures, how good is our performance, um, always putting the members first. Uh, and part of that is uh, why we're a nonprofit uh, scientific educational corporation. We don't answer to shareholders, so we don't have people saying, you know, you gotta, you gotta cut down uh, on the procedures. You gotta minimize the cryoprotection. Uh, the bottom line is suffering. We don't answer to shareholders. We answer to ourselves and our members and our patients, and that's what I'm, I'm most proud of. Well, I know to close this up, and like I said, I appreciate your time and coming on and answering questions that, like I said, probably a lot of people are are a little nervous to even ask. So I know you stated that you're going to go through this process with Alcor. What are you hoping for your next second chance of life? What what made you choose this as your option as well? Oh, well, it's um, I, I get it sounds kind of oversimplified and dumb, but being dead just isn't any fun. I mean, you know, you're just gone. You know, uh, I don't have any kind of a religious belief that something will happen to me after clinical death. Um, and so to me, um, staying alive is the only game. And um, so uh, that's what I've worked my whole life uh, to try to do. And, um, you know, that's it. Well, it'll be good. I'm I'm really uh, I'm really intrigued by Alcor. Like I said, I've I've probably done research now for months and months, and all you know, a lot of my family members and friends even they're like, "Are you sure you want to come back? Like, are you sure that like the first time around with life wasn't enough?" And I'm like, "I like you said, I don't have any religious background or beliefs, um, and you know." you only have two options when you are pronounced as either to be buried or cremated. And so this is such an amazing opportunity of if this can be an option, why not? So I think for listeners that may be contemplating this, please go to their website. Please, all of all of their information is online. Your website is fantastic in answering questions. Um, and just dive into this because I think if we're given this opportunity at a second chance at life, why would we not want to take it? Yes. And, you know, that's another issue for many people. Um, they uh, worry that they will be bored if they live more than the standard 75 to 80 years. They will be bored because they're used to a culture, uh, a medical um, level of ability where as you get old, you slow down, you don't have as much fun, you can't do as many things. And they're worried that um, if they come back, um, they're just going to have that same uh, level of uh, lack of ability and they're just going to get bored. There, there won't be anything new. And um, uh, I think that's another problem with, with people's concept. Um, if we come back, if it is possible to revive us, we talked about how powerful the technology will need to be to revive us. Um, our just as one example, right now, our brains are very, very slow. Uh, if, if we can be revived, um, we will probably think a minimum of, of a million times faster. And that's just based on the physics that it takes uh, a million times longer for electricity to move through biological tissues than it does to move through silicon. That's why computers are so much faster than humans are. And so if you can think a million times faster, this is going to create a society which is so much more interesting, has so many more options for you to consider, so much more fun for you to be involved with. You're never going to be bored. It's going to be much more exciting than our current world. <laughs> I, 
I agree with that. Well, Linda, thank you again so much for coming on. I appreciate it. Uh, I will put in the podcast bio all of Alcor's information and the website so that people can get more knowledgeable and acclimated to this new idea. Um, For some, it's not a new idea. It's been around for many, many years. And then for some listening, they're probably going to be like, "Um, I think I need some more information on this. So thank you again so much for taking the time. what you guys are doing is beyond exciting. And like I said, it's, it's just an option for a second chance at life. So I feel like why not take that opportunity? So, but thank you so much. And I wish Alcor the absolute best. And I definitely foresee the growth coming up for sure in the future. Thank you. I enjoyed talking with you. Thank you so much for tuning in with me and spending your time hanging out. Hopefully you enjoyed today's podcast and a special thank you to all our sponsors. Make sure to check them out. If you have any tips or topics, feel free to email me at littlebitoflifecast at gmail.com or you can also reach out to me on Instagram at littlecute1az. You never know if your topic will be next. Be sure to join me again for another episode of Little Bit of Life. Until next time, stay positive, stay blessed.